This episode is sponsored by Test Shot Starfish. Test Shot Starfish is a creation of entertainment industry veterans Kyle Schember and Ryan Stite, producing music for space. They have scored a number of film documentaries and composed music for clients with space as a theme, including Yuri's Night, the annual multiple venue worldwide celebration of man's inaugural flight in space. The latest release, Music for Sleeping in Space, is an ambient collection for those dreaming of sleeping amongst the stars, available on Spotify and all platforms May 27th. Visit testshotstarfish.com. On this episode, we have Sheila Andreen. Sheila began her entertainment career in costume design, earning an Emmy nomination for her work on The Wonder Years. She turned to writing, directing, and producing, and one of her short films was among the ten considered for an Oscar nomination. She co-founded IndieFlix and recently released a trilogy of films, Angst, Like, and The Upstanders, looking at adolescent social interaction and mental health. Sheila, thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me, Asim. This is really great. I've been looking forward to this for some time because the mission uh, around IndieFlix and the movies that you are uh, producing, directing at the moment, um, I think are, send a very important social message to a very important demographic. And so uh, I'm really thankful that uh, you are here with us. Um, before we dive into those areas, I'd like to take a, a little bit of a step back. Um, sure. So you were born in Sacramento. Yes. And um, your mother is of Chinese origin. And yeah. And your father from the U.S. originally? Where's his family from? He's from the U.S., but he's Swedish and French, and so I'm, I'm Eurasian. <laughs> Excellent. Great. Um, I have to ask this. You have a great spelling of your name. Yeah. What? I don't know that I would say it was great when I was little, but it's, <laughs> it's all I know, so I'm used to it. Yeah, it's, it's Scylla. It's Scylla, S-C-I-L-L-A. It's an Italian spelling of an Irish name. Okay. My mom was an understudy uh, in a play for an Italian actress named Chilla. And so she wanted to name me. She loved the name. And so I grew up with that uh, spelling of my name. Oh, wow. That but is it's just pronounced Sheila. Right. But it's a great story. I love that, the uniqueness of it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> So tell me about the things that you did for fun while you were growing up. Things I did for fun growing up. You know, I um, lived in the mountains of Breckenridge, Colorado. I moved there. Mm -hmm. My father was a developer. So, uh, and I was um, being half Chinese in an all white community. I was really badly bullied the old school bullying, not like today's world of bullying, but sure. uh, you know, like I was kicked and spit on and locked in closets. And so as a result, I didn't really have any friends. So I didn't go out and hang out with people. I had a dog and a cat. And so I spent a lot of time with my, uh, my pets. Wow. They were my best friends. I had an invisible friend named Oliver. He was okay. my age and we did a lot of, we built forts. We went fishing. We went on walks by our, like, just the two of us, even though he was invisible. And he always wanted to do what I wanted to do. And, <laughs> very accommodating um, in that way. Very accommodating. And uh, I, you know, I played school where I was the teacher and the student. I was every student. And so I would like, and I had nine students for some reason, and I would write up nine tests, and then I would hand them out in my bedroom 
like as they were seated. And then I would take every test mm. and then I would collect the tests and I would grade the tests and then I would give it back to each student. So like you were an only I, child. I was the only child until my sister was born when I was 10. Okay. Gotcha. I'm curious, did each of those nine students have their own personas? I only kind of got to know the first two. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and some were really great students and some were not. Some really needed to Didn't study. Didn't take it harder. seriously. I understand. Yeah, that's a good cross-section of most classrooms. So uh, well done. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, with your career, I see kind of two threads or themes. One is uh, kind of a fashion component or costume component, and then the storytelling component. As you think about your childhood experiences, can you like trace the origins of either two specific experiences? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I made that connection a couple of years ago. As a child, when Look and Like magazine started to show up, you know, I remember seeing pictures of you know, the Vietnam War, and they impacted me so much. Like, it, it was hard to breathe. Like, just looking through the photos and seeing people who actually looked like me a little bit yeah. in another part of the world. But I remember seeing these pictures, and I thought, you know what? One day, I'm going to have a magazine, and I want to call that magazine. I even had a name for it. It was called In Perspective. Lovely. And it would be mostly photos with just small captions, and those words would would create a feeling and portray, you know, an energy of other people and living their lives in other parts of the world so that we would have compassion for them and not hate them or be afraid of them. Because I, I knew that the kids that bullied me and didn't want to have anything to do with me, they just didn't know me, right? I felt like if you could just get to know me, you'd actually see I'm not so bad. So I actually, it's not that I was making excuses for them. I just, I've had compassion for them, That's not so understanding who I am. And that I'm, I'm not a bad person. You know, I started Indie Flicks and, we're, and, and it's moving pictures, so it's not a magazine. But it's very similar. It was a bit of an aha moment when I kind of made that connection. No, that's so brilliant. And I really love the way you frame that. Understanding is the way to get through, punch a hole in prejudice or discrimination. When people see each other as a uh, daughter, sister, you know, son, brother, uh, husband, wife, uh, as those roles and they understand how they are in those units as opposed to labels. Yeah. Chinese American, Eurasian. That's when um, we can build those bridges of, of empathy and, um, and do away with, with discrimination. I'm just so flabbergasted that you had this insight at such a young age. How old are you, were you when you conceived of In Perspective? I was nine. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> a lot of nines in my life for some reason. Nine students. I remember that. <laughs> ah, seminal year. Okay. <laughs> so after um, Colorado, you came to LA initially to study at FIDM. Oh, well, actually, there was a few more stops in between. I was, uh, my dad um, and my mom and my little sister and I moved to Seattle. We were actually going oh, to, yeah. on our way to Vancouver. That was during the gas rationing. And so it was Memorial Day weekend and we didn't have enough gas to drive to Vancouver. So we stayed in Seattle and my parents fell in love with Seattle and ended up buying a house there. Oh my and goodness. So we, I grew up in Seattle and 
uh, actually was not bullied in Seattle, which was so amazing. Um, and the bullying kind of stopped when I left the mountain. From Seattle, I actually, um, I broke up with a boyfriend and kind of ran away mm. to Santa Barbara. Okay. And then that's where I did that. They had a FITM satellite campus in oh. Santa Barbara. Okay. And so, yeah, went there and uh, spent a lot of time at the beach. Right. <laughs> Um, it's amazing how, and when you went to these areas that had a denser population, um, the discrimination, the bullying kind of went away and yeah. it's really about, um, exposure yeah. and, and, and being forced to, to, to interact. So after, uh, it looks like about two years at the satellite of FITM, you found your way to NYU. Tell us about that transition. Oh, well, so I had a boyfriend who was, um, he kind of got, recruited by a modeling agency so he was moving to new york and i said oh i'll come with you so i left paradise i also knew i needed to leave santa barbara because it was just so amazing and so beautiful i thought i could spend the rest of my life here but i'm too young so i better go out and do something now i had about 99 dollars in my pocket and i ended up there's a nine again huh the nine again the The nine nine makes another appearance that's right but i thought i'm going and i had a plane ticket so Followed him out to New York. My mom connected me, who I hadn't seen my godmother in years. And I ended up staying with her. And that was very cushy because she had a pet house on Park Avenue. Mm. So I became, I really loved uh, New York life. (laughs) I worked at a place called EAT, which is um, on the Upper East Side. It was a very high end, um, you know, gourmet food and catering company. And I got to go cater parties at Bianca Jagger's house and Mm. Senator Javits and Dustin Hoffman. And so I got to sort of be in those circles and it was really fun. Um, And then I enrolled in NYU and started to go to school. Excellent. And when you started there, um, the focus was, were you already uh, looking at entertainment or film production? No, No, not a bit. I actually was, I love the law. Like I'm seriously obsessed with the law. Um, I grew up watching legal shows like Perry Mason was one of my favorite law shows. And I just thought he was a rock star, but then I proceeded to, you know, like all of David Kelly's shows. I just followed all these law shows. I would even like, if I knew a good episode was coming on, like of Perry Mason, I would like play sick and stay home so I could watch it. (laughs) Um, I don't even know why it was on during the day, but um, I, I really, I studied political science. I wanted to be a litigator. That's what I was passionate about. Okay. Um, and so after graduating with uh, your degree from NYU... Um, I didn't graduate. I dropped out. That's an even better story. <laughs> was, was it nine months? <laughs> it could have been, actually. Yeah, it was oh. my sophomore year. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> beginning of my sophomore year, I met a director at okay. a party, and I had the tray of crab blinis... <laughs> And it was Russian beluga caviar, and it was like $125 an ounce. In those days, I still had this kind of flair. Like, I had a black leather skirt. Like, it had to have an edge oh, to it. I nice. wore my Chinese grandmother's beautiful witchy-poo kind of heels that were suede from Italy. And, that, you know, and he's like, oh, my God, I love this. So he's eating it. It's getting all caught in his mustache. I think I tried like four or five times to pull away from him to go do that, and he just kept shoving it in his mouth. I said, you're acting like a pig. Wow. And you're hogging it all. I need to yeah, go and share it yeah. with everybody. And he was like, oh, he was so hurt and so upset. 
he did not complain to anyone. I thought for sure I'd get fired. And in fact, he found where I worked because I worked in a restaurant downtown at night called La Zinc in Tribeca. Down and he had me, they had the mate, he had the maitre d' seat him in my section where I went to help him. And I'm like, oh, there he was. And he said, I said, I'm so sorry that I said that. He goes, I will forgive you, but you have to go out on a date with me. And I'm like, really? Oh. And so I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And finally I decided to go on a date with him. And it was, um, you know, it was a lunch date to come visit him on set on a commercial, a big commercial he was shooting. And I went to the set and he wasn't there. He had broken his leg by accident and they had rushed him to the hospital. And I, my heart went, Oh, so I went and got some sandwiches and some stuff from EAT. And I went up to the hospital and I went in, I found him in the ER and we had lunch in the ER. Wow. And that just sort of like, I think we moved in together a couple months later. Wow. And okay. He started having me help him on commercials because okay. I had this flair for how I dressed and he liked it. Wow. Fantastic. And uh, how long were you doing commercials before you became costume designer for the Wonder Years? A couple years. I quit school and these were national commercials. They were big campaign yeah. banks. We did the surf detergent commercial, like, and so we would travel around the country and I made such great money and I met people and I started getting involved in producing and casting and editing and getting involved with, you know, with some of the, um, the advertisers. And so I would also babysit the clients a little bit. I just loved talking to them. And, um, and then he wanted to get married. Uh. And so I was like, I'm like, I'm, I'm 21. Like Mm. I'm, I'm too young. And so um, we broke up and I came out to LA to see my mom who had moved to LA and ended up working on some low budget features out of the trunk of my car, which then led me to the Wonder Years and Party of Five, Dawson's Creek. I got on the Wonder Years, I got nominated for an Emmy. I didn't even know what an Emmy was. (laughs) I was like, what's an Emmy? Congratulations on that nomination. That's great. Oh, thank you. From those experiences, um, were you doing any of your own uh, directing at that point? You know, I did a, at that time. I was doing a lot of writing, yeah. um, and I did direct some little videos and things like that. I, you know, made a short film actually that I was supposed to direct, but we, you know, with, with the funding, it kept getting pushed back. And then at the point that we went to shoot it, I ended up just producing it because I was nine months pregnant with my son. And, um, but that film was called bit player, uh, not bit players. That was another one called mutual love life. It was about taking out insurance on relationships Mm. and it actually got shortlisted for, um, Oscar consideration. So there's like, you get the nominations, right? Those are like the five. And then there's a list of 10. That is the list that's pulled out of like the, hundreds or thousands and that 10 is the for consideration and then the nominations is the next set so we were in the for consideration consideration wow congratulations on that thank you that was my first uh that was my first short film okay got you um when did you first conceive of the idea for indie flicks i was very always very interested in kind of the business side of it not just the creative because it was really about you know people right the human condition and but I started getting really interested in just models and how much things make and how they, you know, just how it all works. 
I, I always wanted to do something else. Having made my own content and going out into the film festivals, I saw so many other filmmakers who had some amazing films mm. and nobody was watching them because Hollywood only has so much bandwidth. So I ended up thinking, why don't we just like, I naively thought, let's hang a shingle and we can have all of these films that have no home it have a cool. home. Yeah. And so my producing partner, Carlo and I, um, so, so I was sort of thinking along those lines because I was meeting all these people who had no place to go. And he was thinking, you know, he's so um, such a, a, an advocate for the artists and the arts. And he said, you know, filmmakers don't make any money. We need to figure out a way to help filmmakers make money and, you know, give back the lion's share. We need to have something for filmmakers. And so we, we just co-founded IndieFlix back in 2005 and launched with this DVD on demand when Netflix was doing it by mail um, and started launched with 36 titles. Wow. Amazing. And uh, as you pointed out, it was very uh, filmmaker friendly. You had this innovative revenue share model based on the number of minutes viewed. Um, the inspiration for that being? Well, at that, in those days it was DVD on demand. So oh, it was right. 70, 30 split. 70 to the filmmaker, 30 to IndieFlix. We paid for everything. There was no fee. People were like, well, I don't understand. I don't know. And then, you know, when streaming, you know, people were like, I don't know if I want to have my film up on for streaming or download because someone will, you know, they didn't trust it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all so, new technology, all new forms of exactly. distribution get challenged and, in that way. And so they'd start to come on. And then we went into what I call the entitlement phase. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm online. Where's my money? It's like, well, no, you have to help market it. I'm not a marketeer. I'm a filmmaker. It's like, well, but you've obviously figured out a way to raise money. You've made a movie. You've got actors on board. You got into a festival. Apply that same skill set to marketing. And they're like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And it's like, so then we started doing that. It was, just every, it was, it was a big learning curve for me. I, every day was something new to learn. Um, were you also having your own films on there? The yeah, we films? launched with our own films. We actually got offers from Warner Brothers, Lionsgate, and Artisan before we actually started IndieFlix, who wanted our first movie called Outpatient, psychological thriller. Mm. And um, we, just looking at the de- you know, the the, the um, contract, it was like like all the warning lights went off, and we ended up not I did more research, and we ended up not going with any of them. And we used our own film to launch Indie Flicks because I, I, as much as we would have been nice to take the Warner Brothers deal and ended up on the blockbuster shelf, we sort of thought if we can't say we put our own movie into it, how can we get anyone else to put their movie into it? So when the streaming came into play, that's when I came up with the RPM model, which is revenue per minute. And this was early on. Nobody was paying by the minute. Wow, fascinating. And, um, and it grew to a very wide base. You had 10,000 titles from 85 countries. So you had a collaboration with uh, uh, Xbox. How did that go? It was great. It was exciting. And, and then it was this dud. Um, and don't get me wrong, because I love Microsoft. But, um, and by the way, I was the only woman, you know, in any sort of leadership position in the, you know, online services, right? Mm-hmm. Streaming or digital delivery. So there were a lot of, you know, very heavily funded uh, competitors in the space. And we are very small, 12 angels, you know, I mean, that's it. And um, 
competing in the space. I wanted an Xbox app and it cost like a hundred or 200 something thousand dollars. But I ended up meeting a, a, a new investor who just really believed in me. And he just said, you need a fighting chance. But I negotiated with a really top, you know, partner, dev partner of Microsoft. I got it down to $160,000 and we built and launched our app. I was so excited. I was waiting for like the subscribers <laughs> to come in. We had done all this marketing support. And the very next day they launched Xbox One. Oh. And I was just like, are you kidding me? You should have told me. Yeah, absolutely. And so it was a bit of a disappointment because oh, all man. the energy went into transitioning to Xbox One. Oh, man. Wow. Talk about adversity. That's really something. Um, Sheila, you've been a panelist at a number of uh, film festivals, uh, Sundance, South by Southwest, Cannes. Um, share with us a little bit about those experiences and uh, maybe what were some memorable moments from that? Well, so my first Sundance panel, uh, pretty interesting. I was there with, uh, that's how I met Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix. And I met... Um, who else was there? The, the top banana at uh, uh, Google, you know, YouTube. I learned in making one of my movies that I actually have social anxiety. I'm textbook. And I just remember I couldn't, I could barely remember. They said, why don't we go down the line and just say who you are and what you do. And so they all, all the guys started and I was at the end. And it came to me, I could barely remember my name mm -hmm. and I couldn't, I was uncomfortable talking about what I do. And so I ended up saying, hi, I'm Sheila. Uh, I have a company called IndieFlix. <laughs> and that was it. Like, and, but somehow I got through the panel and people lined up to talk to me and Reed Hastings was so nice. And I just said, you know, I'm a huge Netflix fan. I've, I started IndieFlix <clears throat> because of Netflix. Wow. And he said, well, good. I want you to knock it out of the ballpark. I want you to win. So I was like, okay, thank you. He's always been very supportive. That's so great. It's great to have that relationship and uh, collaboration with, uh, you know, people who are in the same space as we are. You just shared with us something um, wonderful about your discovery of social anxiety. Which film was that that you were making where you had that realization? Oh, uh, angst. Okay. And so a question I had about angst was, was it born of personal experience? And yes. it sounds like you didn't realize that prior to making it, but you were drawn to the story. And during its production, that's when you had the epiphany. Yes, but I will say I was not, I, I went to make, I made angst kicking and screaming. I didn't want to make that movie. Um, a friend of mine had asked me to make it. Oh. And because she knew I'd worked on this one about empowerment and bullying and screen addiction. And she's like, you have got to make a movie about um, mental health. And I was just like, no, that needs to be made by a professional. I don't know anything about it. It's depressing. It's heavy. And I'm sitting there thinking, what are we going to call it? How are we going to start? Like, what are we going to do? And you I were having angst about naming angst. I did it because none of us know anything, right? We just think that that's being nosy and invading someone's privacy. And you don't talk about those things, right? When I said, when I sort of said anxiety isn't cool, but talking about it is, I'm like, there's the tagline. So I thought, okay, we're going to talk about it. We're going to enter this conversation about anxiety. And since everyone has anxiety, and if we want to make anxiety cool, let's call it angst. 
And I worked with my friend every week. And on uh, one morning, I got a call that she had died by suicide. And I knew she was struggling. I knew she was getting a divorce and selling her house. But I didn't know it was that bad. And, you know, I'd started to hear about other, you know, like there was a, a senior in high school in our neighborhood who died by suicide. And yet he had everything going for him and nobody understood. And all of a sudden, like I was paying attention and I was thinking, what is going on? Like, so I channeled all of my grief into making angst. Amazing. Well, and it's a, it's a beautiful film. It's uh, very well done, delivers a great message. And I know that you've been um, taking it globally and doing screenings worldwide. Um, please share a little bit about that. Yeah. You your experience in China. I think that's a very telling response culturally. Yeah. Well, I will say, here's, the, here's, the, here's a lesson I've learned in life. We just never know. With angst, I have learned to be a better friend, a better parent, a better daughter. I'm so much happier. Um, my heart is open, so now I learn even more on a daily basis. And we've had over, I say 7,000 screenings, but I think it's more like actually 8,000. I'd have to go back and look. Right. In 90 countries, it is subtitled in seven languages. It is dubbed into Spanish. And during this time that we're in right now, quarantine and COVID-19, I mean, the UN just announced that you know, addressing our mental health must be a core component of our, you know, recovery. But I couldn't raise a penny for it. Um, we do these big house, ra- you know, fundraising parties at people's houses. We spent, we lost money on them because we spent more money on the food and the wine yeah. to get people to write a check. Yeah. You know, like we, we walked out of Silicon Valley with $500 from my friend who would have given it to me anyway. Right. And we spent more th- than that on, the whole event. And so it was like, finally somebody came to me and they said, I want to help fund this project. And I believe that if I give you a big enough chunk, it will validate it and you will get more money from other people. And they did. And it was exactly what happened. And so I accepted it on behalf of all the people that would benefit from the movie. Oh, well said. Do you feel like the feedback that you're getting from people, are, are you changing minds or is it too early to tell? Oh, we are changing minds. We are you know, the thing is, is like, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I rarely get to just talk about the weather. I actually find that so enjoying now uh, to talk about trivial things because yeah. <laughs> I'm in therapy all day long now. Like I will run into people at the store and they're like, oh, you're the girl who did the mental health movie. You know, let me just tell you, like my son, he's cutting, he's so depressed. What do I do? Like, so like constantly in therapy, right? And what I, it's funny because the advice I've learned to give, well, first of all, I just listen. I'm a much better listener, but I am like the queen of like fixing and rescuing, which is by the way, not good, does not help our children. And I'm getting much better at not doing that. But I, I, I feel like more my role is to help parents learn to listen to their kids more and Mm -hmm. to sit with their kids with their stuff and to love them love them no matter what and focus on the good in them and remind them of the good in their kids and remind them how much they are loved. And just um, it's, sometimes it's a daily or an hourly or by minute practice. We're in this together. I am not going to fix you. I'm not going to rescue you because you have what it takes to do this. And I'm by your side through it because yeah. we're so used to like immediate this and fix that and throw money here. 
and remove this. And it's like, but that does, no, you're not equipping yourself or anyone to get through stuff. So true. Yeah. Sheila, do you think your resistance to making it was trying to shun the responsibility because it is such a weighty topic and it has so many implications? Totally. I mean, I still am intimidated by when I sit there and I'm at a mental health conference, like the one, my the first time we ever publicly showed angst was as a rough cut in Shenzhen, China. Yeah. After a 10 typhoon had blown through, we were at the, the convention center there, second largest screen in China. And all these people in there, and I didn't even have one Chinese speaking person yeah i put them in back the background because nobody would speak to us right. and i apologized to the audience and i said i'm really sorry that there are no speaking asians anywhere in this movie and they all were like well there wouldn't be why why would you why would you have any speaking asians and i said because we deal with it too and they were like no we don't and i was like right okay who would who would have thought that it's more it's so popular in Asia because there are not Asian speaking people in it. Right. Extraordinary. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, we're gonna learn from the Westerners because they're all messed up and we're gonna apply it and be more preventative. <laughs> Amazing. I sort of think about your films Angst Like and Upstanders as a trilogy. Is that the right way to think of it? Yes. Each film has its own personality. Angst is sort of like the big brother, kind of more serious, but filled with hope and deep integrity and a great backbone. And then we have Like, who's like the darling little sister who everybody loves. She's super funny and popular and charming and people just love her and they love talking about her. And she's not heavy in any mm -hmm. way. She's yeah. inspiring and you want to self-regulate and, and she's cool too. She's got fun things. And then there's the upstanders, which is like the third child. And the upstanders is so loving and meaningful in a way that you really self-reflect. And it's not about tips and tricks and, and the scariness of opening up. It's about kind of going deeper and having connection with ourselves, so that we can truly connect with others. And it's about resilience mm. and grit and community and belonging and knowing that we matter. And I think what I learned from making that film, because it's back to bullying, only it's cyberbullying, which is just so different. You know, like kids don't tell their parents because they don't want parents to take their phone away from them. It is their yeah. lifeline to their friends. Yeah. And yet it goes on and you can't see it. There's no bloody, you know, torn shirt. There's no smashed books. There's no black eye. You can't see bullying today. Right. And yet it is, rampant 80% of kids who have a cell phone have witnessed or been the target of cyberbullying, mm -hmm. And they think it's just words. I, it's just a yeah. mean, awful text. I can get through this. Yeah. But when it's constant, yeah. You, and then it's, and then they do these cloaking things and cloning and of numbers and people and fake accounts. You don't know where it's coming from. So suddenly you get paranoid in the world and you don't know who's doing it. And you feel like you can't trust people and you lose connection and you, you start to live in a state of fight or flight, which makes you lonely, which makes you like so anxious. And it's, how do we stop that? How do we, what do we do? 
Yeah. And, and so that film addresses that and is filled with things that we can do. Why I'm put on this earth right now in this body at this time. Uh, part of is to be part of that movement that lets people know that they matter Amazing. and they belong and they are good enough. It's a beautiful mission, Sheila, that you've just articulated. It does help people, which is so great. I, but I feel like the movie is just holding up a mirror so people can see themselves so that yeah. we can identify and know we're, that, oh my God, okay, we're not alone. Oh, I, I'm not the only one feeling this way. I am kind of normal. That's okay. Great. Um, what, in your mind, Sheila, for those films to have been a success, what would you like to see happen with them? Honestly, I would like the trilogy to be free for every student in every school around the world. We all have, a, we all have something we can contribute. So. Yeah, absolutely. Nassim, this was so fun. Thank you. Thank you, Sheila. I really appreciate your time, especially on a busy day. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.